On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are answering, well, our experts are answering your vaccine questions because there are a lot of them. People now very concerned about AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson and other things. We will help you understand what's going on and whether you should get one of those shots or at least help you decide. We're also talking about autographs because you've probably received an autograph from a celebrity, an athlete, a politician, whomever, once upon a time. Autographs are about to change. We're going to tell you how and whether it's a good thing. And you will be shocked, I think, when you hear what a bunch of universities in England are telling their professors and teaching assistants to do. This, we hope, I hope, does not come to Canada, but it may. We're going to talk about what it is. Stick around to find out. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Concerns about vaccines have now been, well, they've been going on for a while, probably since we started hearing about vaccines being ready to come on the market, largely because we, in our lifetime, I don't think we've seen another vaccine that has come to market as quickly as the COVID vaccines that we are now injecting into people. And at first it was concerns with the AstraZeneca vaccines with some problems, some health issues, rare, but nonetheless, that were out there that caused the governments in some places to say, we're going to not use it or we're going to not use it with certain people. Well, now today or within the last couple of days, Johnson and Johnson, there are questions and some places are saying, maybe we should hold back. What do we do with all this information? I want to bring in Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid. He is a health expert. He has been on here many times, although it's been a while, but we are glad to have him back. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've heard about the concerns with AstraZeneca. We've now heard about these concerns with Johnson and Johnson. Should we be concerned if you have an appointment to go get your needle, should you be asking which one you're getting? And if they say one of those two, should you be in a panic? Well, I mean, first of all, I do understand the people's concern around the vaccine safety. I mean, this news about blood clots doesn't really soften the blow around the hesitancy between getting vaccinated. However, Scott, I think that the experts have weighed in on this by reviewing all the evidence available there is no risks really that outweigh the benefits of getting the vaccine. So to explain that better, you know, the risk of you getting COVID-19 uh, and developing really severe complications is extremely much, much higher than you getting a vaccine, whether it's AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, and developing a blood clot. Currently, the risk sits at 1 in 100,000, which is a very, very rare condition to happen. Yeah, and I mean, people have pointed out, to be absolutely fair, people have pointed out that if you... St- Go get in your car, the chance of being in an accident is probably greater than that or fly in a plane or cross the street or whatever. I mean, we, we take risks every day. That's, that's, you know, risk is not, we don't live in a risk-free world. Exactly. And also, if you do get a blood clot, I think that's another part of the conversation that we're not having. That's a treatable condition that, you know, if you recognize the symptoms and you're able to uh, access healthcare, you're able to get treated for that possible blood clot, even if it does happen. However, with COVID-19, if you get it, the consequences are severe and can include death, which is you know, a very drastic thing that might happen to you. So the point I'm trying to make here is that whichever vaccine you have access to, as far as we know now from all the evidence we've evaluated here in Canada, there is no risk associated with AstraZeneca, which is the vaccine that's been given out right now. I should know the answer to this, and I think I probably do, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is there, are there cases, every year people, millions of people get the flu shot or get tetanus shots or get whatever other booster shots. Are there cases each year where those cause the odd problem? There are always side effects with any vaccine we give out. There is no vaccine that's bulletproof 
uh, and that's considered sort of 100% safe and effective. With any vaccine that's been given out, there are slightly some risks that might be associated, blood clots being the most common or one of the common things that can happen with uh, flu with any vaccine. Flu-like symptoms can happen, a little bit soreness and tenderness around the arm can happen. But, you know, our healthcare providers on the field, family doctors who are, uh, can really be able to assess that condition firsthand if anybody develops any symptoms, they usually are very good about reporting it to their family doctor or the ER, and they're able to get the, the care they need for that. Because, you, I mean, I know that you know what is being said by some people who are very concerned about this, and that is these vaccines were brought to market so unbelievably quickly, for good reason, of course, with COVID, but they were brought to the market so quickly that they weren't given the testing time that we would give for other vaccines. And therefore, you know, maybe there are some concerns that we should have here because we don't really know the long-term impacts. I mean, that, that concern is valid. And we have to, you know, say that first at the beginning, that, you know, people who have concerns about the speed of the, the way the vaccine was manufactured is it, a valid concern. However, however, what's very important to emphasize is that the, the steps taken to actually make sure that this vaccine is safe, which what I mean by that is Health Canada, our regulatory agency that looks at whether drugs and vaccines and vaccines fall under drugs are safe to administer, have gone through the exact same process, whether this vaccine was developed in one year or was developed over 10 years. Uh, and that checklist has proved to be that the vaccine is the benefits outweigh the risks and it is safe for administration here within Canada. Any vaccine out there has side effects. Uh, the reason why we're learning about AstraZeneca and it's becoming head, uh, headline news is because it's something that's impacting all of us. All of us are concerned mm. about COVID-19 in some respect. And a lot of us, I won't say that all of us, want to get the vaccine. And so we're paying very close attention to whether this vaccine is safe or not. If it is safe, and I'll, and I'll assume that it is. I mean, I'll, I'll take your word. But assuming that it's safe... Should we expect that in the future then that vaccines will be brought to market much more quickly than they have been in the past because it's been shown to be possible? It depends. If you're speaking about the uh, uh, Pfizer or Moderna, which is using a new technology called mRNA technology, something that's been in the works for a while, but because of COVID, it sort of, you know, was able to get the momentum and the funding, specifically around funding, uh, the money for it to be developed. That has the potential to really change the way uh, we produce vaccines for not just COVID-19, but there are reports that, you know, we could be looking at a vaccine for HIV and AIDS. And, and that's, I mean, tremendously huge progress in that field. So, yeah, I suspect that COVID-19 has really changed the way we look at how we produce vaccines. And let me just be more clear on that, Scott. I think what is also realizing for us that's important to us Canadians is that our ability to locally and domestically be able to manufacture our own vaccine has become center stage. I think that a lot of what we're facing right now with the surge in our numbers in COVID-19 and, and our publicity around the world being uh, one of the G7 countries that's not doing so well with COVID, it really stems from our, our inability to successfully secure enough vaccines and mm. to aggressively vaccinate the majority of our population in record times. Part of that is from our inability to actually manufacture our vaccine and our dependence on foreign exports. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, we were just talking before the break about whether we would expect that vaccines now that we've seen them produce them this quickly, whether we might see that with other vaccines. Leaving the vaccines aside for a second, there are other experimental medical 
procedures that oftentimes seem to take a very long time and people who have conditions, I know we're moving away from COVID for a second a little bit, but people who have these difficult conditions are waiting for these things to be approved. Once again, because we've seen something get put into place so quickly, is there a chance we might see things loosening up a little with some of those things? I don't suspect so. I think it's, you know what's happening right now with the vaccine development is going to open up much more reforms across different sectors within healthcare. So whether it's vaccine, drug supply, diagnostic modalities, things that we can use, to actually techniques that we're able to use to, to figure out how we can uh, diagnose things earlier. But also just on a health system perspective, I think COVID-19 is making us realize where our priorities are. You know, we, we saw deficiencies with ICU units. Uh, and how we're able to triage them, I think that is going to be very telling in how we restructure our healthcare system moving forward. All right, let's get back to COVID for a second here, because that's obviously front of mind. And variants are the other. So vaccines, two V words that seem to be all the talk these days, vaccines and variants. And we've been hearing now that some of the variants are not being captured by the vaccines. That sounds like a problem is it a unique problem or is that the case with any vaccine that it doesn't cover everything? I think it's actually an expected problem. I don't think the expectation, uh, I mean, the, the, that when, when the vaccines were developed, that they're going to cover all variants. I think that the idea that we were going to need a booster shot and that, you know, we need might need a different format of the vaccine for easier way of explaining it might be necessary in the future was always there. I, I don't think anybody uh, in the field uh, was thinking that, you know, that you're going to develop this vaccine that will protect you against all. It's a virus at the end of the day. Viruses mutate. They get tricky over time. They figure out the human body better and they figure out how to mutate. Um, and by that, we need to develop things to, to tackle them better. However, what is incredible is that we now have the core vaccine that we just need to sort of alter every time there's a variant to figure out what is the most effective way to combat it. Let me ask you about that mutation because I had always thought, and maybe I just heard this wrong, I always thought that people had said that when viruses mutate into a variant, they get weaker, but it sounds like a lot of these are becoming stronger with COVID. Yeah, but COVID-19 is, is presenting itself very differently than what we, you know, we've seen before. COVID-19, the variants specifically here is what I'm talking about, are highly transmissible and highly infectious. And so they're able to really ravage through communities in a much faster speed uh, than, than anticipated. And I think that it's very hard for us to actually know how that would look like because we, again, COVID-19 is a new pandemic, it's a new virus, it's under the same family of coronaviruses, but its specific strain is a new one that we've seen. So a lot about how it's able to mutate, we're learning on the spot. And I think that's part of the reasons why, you know, the vaccine manufacturers, whether there's Pfizer, Moderna, or even AstraZeneca are looking very closely at those variants to see whether their vaccines will actually be effective towards them. Have there been more variants, though, than we would have expected? Or would this have been, because it seems like all of a sudden there's a lot. They're coming from England and South Africa and I think Brazil and other places. Is that what was expected or have we been surprised by the number? I don't think we've been surprised. I mean, I haven't spoken to anybody that seems to be surprised about the existence of variants. I think that we expected the variants. The real question becomes for us Canadians is that how strong of a hold does it have in our communities and how will we be able to protect ourselves? And one way to do so is to ensure that everybody's vaccinated. We continue the public health interventions in place because the reality is those variants are becoming more sneaky, for lack of better words, and they're really finding better ways to sort of attack the human body. Will we continue, even after people get vaccinated, will we continue to see variants? Some infectious disease specialists are actually saying that uh, with more vaccinations in place, that it will reduce 
the way the virus mutates eventually. It will take some time, but it will change the way the virus sort of mutates itself because it will have a harder time getting through humans. I mean, that was the report that infectious disease specialist has said. But again, I don't think anybody can 100% you know, confirm that report. I think it's going to wait and, and see what happens in the next few months, probably in the next year, Scott, until we have sort of more of our population vaccinated and we're studying the virus and this variant much closer. One last thing, and, and I, I always appreciate the time. And when, what is the number that we have to get down to in Ontario or Hamilton or Canada to before we can return to some kind of normal life? This has been a question a lot of people have had. Do we have to get to zero cases before we can say, okay, masks off, get back together with your family? Or is there just a, or do we know what the number is? I don't think we know what the number is. Some people speculate around 70, 60. I've heard all kinds of numbers. I think it's a million dollar question. I tend to be very careful with giving that number because I'm not an epidemiologist that can study that. I think we need to speak to a sort of statistician. But even when you speak to them, Scott, even when you speak to people who do this for a living, they'll tell you that it all is dependent on how well we come out of a third wave and now with the potential fourth wave that's gonna target the young population. And so you, know, you can have all the projections in the world, but at the end of the day, it all depends on human behavior. And if there's anything we learned from this pandemic and other uh, crises is that human behavior is one of the most difficult things to actually predict uh, and shape and change. And so I think what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, to put everybody's mind at ease, the more we vaccinate, the, the more likely we are going to have the pandemic behind us. Will we ever live in a zero COVID-19 world? Absolutely not. And I dare anybody to say otherwise. I think that the, you know COVID-19 will coexist with us for an exceptionally long time. I'm not sure how long we'll be around. And our job now is to figure out how do we coexist with this virus. Uh, one way is the vaccines for all of us, the majority of us at least, to get vaccinated, develop herd immunity. And the other way is to continue some form of uh, social uh, public sorry, intervention in place, uh, whether it's social distancing, face masks, and hand hygiene. I mean, hand hygiene should continue to be the norm for the rest of life. Well, I'd like to congratulate you. You're the first person on the show to talk about the fourth wave. <laughs> you're, you're ahead of the curve. So everybody listening, fourth wave is coming. Uh, we're excited about that. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid, we always love having you on. Thanks for taking time tonight. Of course. Happy to be with you. Thanks, Scott. Have a good week. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hands up out there, not if you're driving, but hands up out there. If you have ever got an autograph from a celebrity, could be an athlete, could be a musician, could be a actor, a politician, whomever. If you've ever got an autograph, let me see those hands. I have. We'll talk about it a little bit later. But I mean, I think most people at some point have probably got a chicken scratch from somebody and then gone home and showed off that autograph people because you met someone. And that's really, I think, why you get an autograph. But things are changing. Things are changing. There is a new company that is being started by Tom Brady, as in the quarterback, Tom Brady. He's behind it anyway. That is going to try to turn the autograph business into an NFT business. That would be non-fungible tokens. And yes, like you, I had to look up the definition of fungible because it's not a word I use every day. And basically it comes from the Latin for fungi, as in fungi. Um, but it's a word that is, it means something that can be exchanged for something else of the same kind. So a non-fungible token means it's not exchangeable. It's unique. It's entirely unique. So it's a digital thing 
it's online, but that you have the only one. But we're going to now do it. Apparently, celebrities are going to do this with their autographs. Celebrities, athletes, authors, whomever. They can sign something online, send it to you as a file, and now you own it. I want to bring in Alan Cross. He is the guy behind a journal of musical things. Usually when Alan comes on, we are diving into the world of music, and we kind of are here because musicians do sign autographs and celebrities sign autographs. But I saw this story, and then I saw that Alan had written about it on a journal of musical things. Please go read it. It's a great site. Tons of great stuff on there. Alan, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Do you like this idea? Uh, I understand why it's being done. Uh, autographs are one of those things that people love to collect. Uh, sometimes they will, in the old days, what used to happen, you would write to the uh, management or the record label or the studio or whatever and request an autograph, and you might get a, a, something back in the mail. Now, on most of the, in many of those instances, you had a secretary who was trained in forging the signature of the star and uh, she would sit there for hours and hours and hours and write all these these uh, these autographs. So they they are essentially worthless because they weren't written by the person uh, who you know, supposedly owned that that signature. The uh, the other problem is that a lot of autographs are being sold on eBay, mm-hmm. and they're fake. Um, or what's happening is that real autographs are being sold online. Uh, when, a, as a way of, of, of making money. So a celebrity, for example, will sign, uh, sign a whole bunch of things. Uh, there will be one guy or one woman in line who will make sure that they get this autograph and then immediately flip it for big dollars. And, of course, the celebrity gets absolutely nothing. Uh, I spoke to Ringo Starr a couple of years ago, and he stopped autographing stuff because he was tired of seeing his signature being sold on eBay for huge, huge amounts of money. Mm. So the idea here is to give fans an opportunity to collect actual autographs with a pedigree, with a provenance, uh, except that it lives in the digital realm. It's not in an autograph book or a picture or a record album or anything like that. But it is the real thing because it is, and this is where non-fungible tokens come in, it is a digitally authorized, uh, unique copy that is logged in the blockchain. And I'm, we just lost everybody. They just, yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's, it's essentially something could show up in your inbox because you've purchased something or like Amazon or whatever. And all of a sudden there's the person's autograph where, where, and, and you're right. You're absolutely right. It would get rid of forgeries. It would make it so that if someone did decide to sell one, you would at least be able to prove that it's legit where Alan, where this falls apart for me is the purpose of an autograph. And maybe I just don't understand, or maybe I have a different perception of it. But for me, getting an autograph, especially when I was a kid, was it was a memento of a few seconds you spent with someone who was famous, someone you were a big fan of or something else. Getting a digital autograph seems just entirely impersonal and removes that feeling of that was something I, that was a moment I had. Now it's entirely a financial transaction. Right, there's, there's no experience attached to it. You know, you didn't stand in line to get an autograph. You didn't wait by the backstage door to get an autograph. You uh, didn't, you know, there's, there's so you didn't go up to somebody in a restaurant and get an autograph. I mean, all these things come with the story. That's that's one of the things for me anyway. But I and I have a whole bunch of signatures. Is I got them because I met the person. I breathed the same air 
for a couple of seconds, uh, and they signed my thing in front of me so I know it's real. What this is, now Tom Brady is one of the co-founders, and uh, Michael Rapino, the CEO of uh, Live Nation, is also a part of this. And there's other, you know, I think there's somebody from Spotify and a few other people that are, they're, you know, high-powered people that are on the board of directors for this, uh, autograph dot, what is it? autograph.io, I think it is. And it's, it's, it's an opportunity for celebrities to make money with no effort. Because all they have to do is create a, an autograph. Uh, they authorize X number of copies, digital copies, certified copies of that autograph, and then sell them. So they're not, they don't have to actually uh, you know, deal with the, the dirty fans anymore. They can just yeah. sit back, write their autograph once, and then watch the money roll in. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alan, I, I, I don't collect a lot of autographs over my life. I have a few. The, my favorite autograph story, though, and I want to hear yours, we went on a cruise, our family, years ago, probably 10 or 12 years ago, and one night, the show that night, I, I started laughing because I thought the guy was dead, but it was Bowser from Shaw Na Na who was performing <laughs> on the ship. And at the end of the show, it was one of these Royal Caribbean ships that has a big open hallway, basically, in the middle of the ship, and he sat there. And he's, we had a window looking over this promenade and he sat there for about five hours signing autographs for thousands, it seemed, of middle-aged people who remember him from Sha Na Na. I don't know what you do with a Bowser autograph once you've got it, but, but the point was you had that moment with him as opposed to him just sending you something online. But before we get back into it, who's your favorite autograph story from? Well, I have a Kurt, I have a Kurt Cobain sitting on the wall that I bought from Amazon for, uh, or is it eBay? I bought it for $20. Huh. Who did you ever get now, one from? Who's the favorite one you got one from? The favorite one that I've got one, uh, let's see, Kate Bush. And I'll tell you why. It's because she almost never appeared in public. She never, never ever inter- interacted with fans. But I had an opportunity to do this many, many years ago. And uh, I basically, uh, you know, summed up all my courage and asked her to sign a scrap of paper I have. And uh, that, that's, my, that's, that's my rare one. <laughs> that's cool. I wonder if autographs, even as we talk about this, I wonder if autographs have actually been replaced with the selfie now, though, because you can get someone to sign something for you, but is a selfie of you with the celebrity not now the modern autograph? I think so. I mean, that's certainly what uh, I've seen with celebrities. You get your, you know, because there's proof that you were, in fact, in contact with this particular celebrity. And that particular photo is worth nothing to anybody else other than you. So it's actually pretty special. And, and I would almost rather have a selfie with someone than their autograph. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's been funny to me over the years that you hear people say, make sure if you get an autograph, they don't make it out to anyone. They just sign the name because as soon as they make it out to somebody it loses all of its value. And I'm thinking, well, no, it, then it has more value to the person who got it because it says that you met them. Right. But then it's not worth anything on the open market. And, and, and that's what a, a lot of this is about is controlling the supply and controlling the price of an autograph. Now, when we go back and we talk about non-fungible tokens, these NFTs, uh, a very important part of this is this registration with the sale of the autograph 
on this thing called the blockchain, which is all involved with cryptocurrency and the rest of it. Now, you can sell your autograph, and when you do, that sale is recorded on the blockchain, and the originator of the autograph, in other words, the celebrity, gets a piece of the action of that sale. So that's another reason why a lot of celebrities are interested in this, because even if people do go and try and flip all these digital autographs, they're going to get paid again and again and again every time it's sold. Oh, I, I, I can absolutely see why the celebrities love this idea. I just think that it becomes entirely impersonal. And again, not to keep rehashing the same thing, but takes away the purpose, the initial purpose of the autograph. Yeah, but here's the problem with guys like you and me. We live in an analog world. This is this is directed at people who have always lived digitally. Um, and we can go deeper into this whole NFT thing where, you know, there was a, an artist named Beeple who sold a digital, like the, the digital original of a, a piece of art he did in the early 1980s. And he got $69 million for it. Uh, what, what's happening with, with some of these big purchases is that it's, the buyers are usually people who made a lot of money on cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So if you, a number of years ago, bought Bitcoin and it was $300 a coin, well, now it's over $60,000. So you've got all this funny money that you can play with. So if you had 1,000 Bitcoins at $300, how much is that worth now? So yeah, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll drop $300,000 on some digital art. That's I guess, but it, it also, but Alan, it, there's another thing that goes along with this. We only have a minute or so left, but there's something else that I've seen recently that kind of falls into this same area. On, I think it's on Facebook. I don't know where I've seen these, but you can now get celebrities to do video messages for you, right? where uh, you pay them 60 bucks or 80 bucks or whatever. And, and, you know, Dan Marino, I've seen one with him. He'll come on and go, Hey, Alan, nice to, you know, hope you have a, well, what's the point of that? If he's talking to a name that he's never met it, like to me, again, it seems like it just, it seems ridiculous almost that, okay, so you've paid him, someone's paid him 80 bucks. He's never met you and he's talking to you, but he doesn't know you. He's, he can't even see you. Oh, well, it, it's cool for some people. The, the app is called yes. uh, Cam, uh, Cameo. And yes. I was just reading about some of the celebrities that have made money on Cameo. Uh, uh, John Cleese has made hundreds of thousands of dollars. I bet. I bet. By just offering up, you know, quick little, I mean, 30 to 60 second messages to people. Holy crap. I mean, if you're locked down and a celebrity who has been out of work or has had their work curtailed because of the pandemic, this is the easiest way to make money ever. It really and is. Now, and now if you want to do autographs, you can. You know what I would love to see? We got to run. What I would love to see, if I had to pay a hundred bucks to get John Cleese to do a commercial, a video message to me, I would rather pay 200 bucks and be able to do a Zoom call for five minutes or something so I could actually chat with him and then same amount of time probably, and then you at least have had that interaction. Well, there are services that do that too. Yeah, most of them are adult though, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. Stay off only fans, okay? <laughs> Alan Cross, go read A Journal of Musical Things. It's a fantastic website. So much good stuff on there every single day. Alan, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I read a story, well, a number of stories over the last day or so, and I I had to do a little digging to make sure that it was not a prank, it was not a scam, it was not pulling my leg and, you know, something from Beaverton or something else like that. 
I had to make sure this was real. And apparently it isn't. It's, it's been written about in all kinds of newspapers around, especially around the United Kingdom and other media. It goes like this. A number of universities in England are now instructing their professors and teaching assistants not to deduct grade points for bad spelling or grammar. If something is written and it is an absolute mess, but you can sort of understand what they're saying, you're not supposed to dock any points for the grammar or the spelling. Just, you know, go with their thought process because that's what's important. So why is this happening? Well, at Hull University, for example, their new policy says the requirement for a high level of proficiency in written English can be seen as, quote, a homogenous North European white male and elite. So, in short, good written communication skills, according to this, is elitist and possibly racist. Really? Really? Dr. Ken Coates is a professor and Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan. He is the co-author of the book Campus Confidential. He joins us now. Dr. Coates, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Delighted to be with you. I am quite honestly struggling with this one um, because it seems as though if the universities are having difficulty with some students who are not able to reach a certain level of proficiency, they're just lowering the bar, which to me seems the opposite of what universities and post-secondary schools are supposed to be doing. Or am I totally wrong? No, you're not wrong. And it's a complicated situation as it always is with universities. Um, essentially, we become sort of, a, sort of a more open access paradigm in North America where everybody gets to go. Um, and when you bring people in with a bunch of uh, very varied backgrounds, some of them are strong, some of them are extremely weak, uh, and then you focus on what they call retention, which is getting people through to graduation, we, you run the risk of, of watering the whole exercise down. You know, when, when I was a, a kid in the 19, early 1970s, about 10% of, of Canadian high school graduates went on to university. Now it's 40%. And I'm afraid you cannot convince me that, that four times as many people are ready for university, anxious to go, talented, motivated, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so what happens is professors uh, are, are really stuck in a rock and a hard place. You know, if they, if they mark uh, essays for grammar, their, their student evaluations can be quite difficult. Um, they can get criticisms on ratemyprofessor.com, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the vast majority of professors persist in the areas where literacy and writing skills are highly valued. Um, some, a very small number, have given up, but in some institutions you get situations happening like you've seen the ones you cited in the United Kingdom. They had an episode of this in high school down in, uh, down in New Zealand a few, a few years ago. Um, you have a situations in Alberta where a professor was uh, sort of let go from his contract because he tried to give a student a zero on a paper he didn't hand in and was told he couldn't do that. So, so we've got a real challenge these days between the sort of um, what we call the snowflake generation of uh, worried about demanding too much of our students and <clears throat> expecting them to, you know, sort of measure up to our standards um, and the realities of what we promise. We promise that when you go to university, you'll come out with the skills necessary to succeed in a 21st century economy. And I can tell you with sadness that a lot of employers say that's not always the case. We had a professor from uh, Western on here some time ago 
And I recall what he talked about, and it was along a similar line, was that they refer now not to students necessarily, I mean, they still call them students, but that students have become customers, have become clients of universities. And therefore, it it vastly changes how you can deal with them. I mean, the client is always right. The customer is always right. We don't like to fail people. We don't want to have them not bring their tuitions. As you say, we don't want them to have their bad reviews of professors. It changes dramatically if you're a client as opposed to a student, how you handle things. It, that's true. I mean, when you get universities that have higher entrance standards, if you look at the the medical program at, at, at McMaster, for example, which turns away you know, the vast majority of the people who apply. You can apply whatever standard you want. The students will be absolutely crackerjack and they'll, they'll be really pleased with the results. So institutions that have, have high entrance requirements um, can, can demand and expect more. Harvard this last year, I think, accepted 3.2% of the people who applied. Um, and places like Stanford, the percentage is around the same, about 4%. Uh, that doesn't happen in Canada. You may not get into engineering at Queen's, but you can probably get into the arts program at Queen's. The entrance requirements are quite different. Um, and so we in Canada haven't faced the sort of the, the, the huge, uh, we don't have the, the really high quality elite entrance, sort of highly competitive sort of environment. Um, but I'll tell you, it actually is getting to be a real serious problem. Um, you get students coming in in the first year. And, um, let me put it this way. When a student comes in in the first year and they're having trouble writing, they don't, they can't put a sentence together or whatever. I tend not to blame them. Um, they might have goofed off in high school, but they also were passed out of high school. And some of them come in with, you know, I've got 85% in high school. Why are you telling me I can't write? And you show them a paper you've marked up with lots of grammatical errors. And they say, well, my professors, my teachers didn't say that. All depends on the school. All depends on the teacher. So the students are, are not uniformly prepared for high, for university. Um, we don't have enough students who read enough so that they actually are, are confident in the English language and as, a, as a literary form. But I get, it's getting very frustrating. And nothing more so than when you graduate somebody and they go out and they get their first job and they get let go after a couple of months because their, their, their employer can't trust mm. their literary, literary skills. Um, so we don't, we do nobody a benefit by not ins- insisting on, on, on top-level writing skills. Um, you know, that, that has to be a requirement and we have to be consistent about that. At the, one of the universities in, in England that is talking about this, it's the University of the Arts London. Um, academics there are being told, and I'm going to quote this, to avoid imposing your own idea of correct English on student work, which I find weird because correct English grammar is not a subjective topic. There are rules that are involved. Grammar is like anything else. There are structural rules. It's not like professors or teachers get to decide what is their correct English. It's either correct or it's not. So you, you, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that, except I'll, I'll put some qualifications on it. Number one, we bring in an enormous number of international students who have English as a second language. And, and what we're, we really face, we accept their, their, their tuition fees, which are much, much higher than they are for Canadian students. They actually are, are buttressing the entire post-secondary enterprise, particularly in Ontario. Um, and, and then we sort of you know, say, okay, well now we're going to treat you as though you're a Canadian high school graduate who did all 12 years in the Canadian elementary and secondary system. So there's an unfairness and an unjustness there. I think we have an obligation to reach out to the students expect English performance, but also make sure they have a chance to learn the skills and gain the skills and what have you. Where it becomes really problematic and, and much more sensitive, and I'm, I mean, I'm sensitive to parts of this, 
is that we now have uh, interesting sort of subcultures, I guess you want to call them, or cultural sort of groups within North American society um, who use quite different language forms. And this became a huge issue in California, where you have what you call eubonics, which essentially is the, the language of African-Americans, in, in urban African-Americans, or, or for some of them. And, and there were suggestions that, in fact, professors should accept uh, you know, that kind of language as being the same as. Um, and, and at the end of the day, um, if you want a, a degree or a credential or a diploma from, a, from a, an English language institution, you should be able to say that you passed all the requirements in the English language. It really is quite as simple as that. Uh, I think it is anyway. Um, and it's very surprising when you see universities sort of bending a little bit too far. Um, I think we should accommodate students and help them get from where they are to where they need to be. But I don't think we, we, we help do anybody any favors by just accepting where they are as being as far as they can go. But, but what you've just said, and I, I agree with what you just said about we should help. I mean, if you're an international student who's coming and English is not your first language, <clears throat> excuse me, I agree that we should have some understanding under that circumstance, but programs should be there to enable them to have extra work or, or ways to improve their English. So when they're here, they can, they can do that. But once again, I go back, English grammar does have structure. It does have rules to it. And if we say, well, you don't need to follow those rules, you don't need, to, we, we're not going to mark you down for wrong usage. Why just grammar? Why just spelling? Why not yeah. math? Why not some other subject and just say, you know, they also have rules. I didn't quite get it right, but at least it looked like I knew what I was doing. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. If you go on that line too far, it's a real challenge. And a friend of mine was uh, Rick Miner, Dr. Rick Miner, who was the president of Seneca College. And he had his university do some research on sort of the English language skills of incoming students. And, and the research in their program showed that you needed about six years of, of sort of experience and training in English to come really get up to a high level of technical proficiency around a lot of their technical programs in, in health and engineering and things of that sort. And his dilemma was that, that Seneca was offering these courses in two years. And it's extremely difficult to pick up a second language. Um, and, and yet we've built this logical flaw into our, into our recruitment, recruiting system. Um, if you go back 20 years ago, people were sort of expected to have high-level English skills before they got to Canada. Now we sort of bring them in in hopes they can get it while they're here. So it seems to me that if universities um, and colleges want to be able to say, uh, when our, our graduates are work-ready, they're career-ready, they're prepared for the workforce, prepared for the 21st century economy, um, if you talk to any employer, you will find that they will say one thing we expect and demand is a high level of literacy. There are very few employers that I know who do not want truly literate and truly talented um, uh, university graduates working for them. It's just a requirement. So I think if we if we start playing with this game, we're not listening to the employers. Uh, and, and given that we're promising our students we're getting them ready for the workforce, we better make sure that the students understand the requirements and then make sure we can help them get there. So if a student doesn't have those skills, let's give them a real effort, as long as they try, as long as they persist, um, and let's give them a chance to gain those skills. Absolutely essential. Yeah, because we're doing a disservice to them if we send them out into the world and we've told them it's okay, but all the employers out there have not been part of this conversation and agreed to the same terms. Absolutely right. And I think it's one of those interesting things where if you talk to employers, they will tell you, these days, they're always telling you they're interested in the soft skills, the teamwork, the problem solving, 
That part is absolutely true. Those are those are the kind of talented, highly motivated employees that we all want. But but I think you'd also talk to employers. You'll find they want to make sure you can write a letter and an email, um, and that you aren't sending communications out to to uh, professional clients um, and with with uh, you know grammatical errors and all sorts of problems in your presentation. Uh, and I think we need to be employers need to let the universities know that and universities need to let their staff know that staff need to let their faculty need to let the students know that. Um, and we better have support of the parents um, because I'll tell you one of the biggest challenges in universities now to come what high school teachers have been dealing with for the last 20 years. And that is parents who are very upset if their children mm. are not getting the uh, encouragement and recognition that the parents think they deserve. So this is kind of a whole of society enterprise. Um, and quite frankly, if you compare a situation to, um, say, Northern Europe, for example, where the average student comes out of grade 12 going off to university, will probably speak three languages. They'll certainly speak Norwegian, Swedish, or Finnish. They'll also speak uh, English for sure and probably speak one other language. And when you have those many languages, the skills in so many languages, your, your grammatical abilities go up. They don't go down. They actually, because you don't understand the relationship of language and structure. And, and, and that's our competitive environment. There are more people studying English in China right now than there are English speakers in the United States of America. Um, in China, they don't necessarily teach you to learn it particularly well at all institutions, but they are really trying to learn the language. And, and we better put the same expectations on our students. You know, English, we're fortunate, is uh, the language of global commerce. Um, let's make sure our students are prepared. And let's make sure our faculty members are supported and our staff members who teach in the writing centers are supported um, so that they get the message that writing is not an option. It's actually probably one of the most important determinations of determinants of career success. You know, it's not optional. And you mentioned high schools. And, and I, I, you know, it seems interesting that one of the things we've heard over recent years and you just touched on it with the, I can't remember if it was university or high school where the the teacher or professor was not allowed to give a zero for a, a paper that wasn't handed in. It seems in high schools now, we really, really, really don't want to fail anybody no matter how badly they've done in school. We want to keep pushing them along. It seems universal. It sounds like that's what universities are doing now. We don't, we've decided that nobody can fail regardless of whether they're worthy of going through or not or ready to go through or not. So, so here's the dilemma we have in universities. Um, we have a bunch of our most high-demand high programs actually are externally validated. It doesn't matter what you teach in a medical school. You have to go and get a you know, Canadian Association of Physicians and Surgeons have to pass your, your tests at the end of the day. Engineering has external validation. Accounting has external validation. Same with nursing. And, and these programs, it doesn't matter what you teach, but you, if you're, all your students fail, you're going to hear from them really quickly. If you graduate, you know, 20 students and 18 of them fail their exams, not going not gonna to be very successful, all right? But a lot of our programs don't have that. Biology doesn't have it. History doesn't have it. Economics doesn't have it. Um, so, in fact, we, we need to put in these expectations around passing and failing all the way through the whole system. Now, we do not shy away from failing people in universities. About 30% of all the students who go to university in Canada in their first year never come back. Um, and it's actually in place, some places it's higher than 50%. And, you know, so it's not as though we pass everybody. Um, oftentimes the students just leave because they have a horrible experience. They're getting lousy grades. So faculty members are, are pretty good about this. Um, they're much, it's much easier to do that when you have machine gradable exams and your multiple choice questions and things of that sort. It's kind of arm's length. 
But if you're writing, uh, marking a series of essays and they've written 14 pages and only two of them are literate and you want to fail it and the person comes in, you know, how I passed in high school, why are you failing me now? Those are difficult conversations. Um, and I think, you know, failure is part of life and, and picking yourself off the ground is part of life. Um, mm. And I think it's important we, we understand what the requirements are. So uh, personally, I don't have a problem with having high expectations for student writing. Student writing. Um, when I used to, I have been a teacher for many, many, many years, and I used to give my papers back to my students and say, didn't like this very much, rewrite it. And they'd say, well, I, I haven't got time. I didn't plan for that. I said, well, all right, I'll give you a very lousy grade. <laughs> and sometimes they would, believe it or not, someone would just say, okay, I'll try better next time. But I remember one very persistent student and taught at the University of Victoria, and I think her first essay, she, she did something like eight times. I'd give it back to her and say, nope, fix this up, and she'd give it back and fix it up. And she came to see me the year later, and she said, I really resented you last year. You kept making me do the essay better, but I got passing grades on all of my courses as a result. And I'll tell you, there are many faculty members who do that, devote an enormous amount of time to individual students. Um, many of them are sessional instructors who are getting paid very poorly for their work, but they nonetheless give an enormous amount of effort and time to university students and, and help them in all the things that they're doing. So, so cheers for those ones who are making the effort. And I always tell students, you know, if you've had a professor who's come really come down on you really hard on your, on your writing abilities, then at the end of your career, go and give them a big hug or at least mm. shake their hand or, or send them a thank you note and a chocolate bar, you know, because they, those people are going to set you up for, for your whole life. Um, and, and I wish more people would understand that. And I wish more parents would get behind it. We only have a couple minutes left here. And so very quickly, um, this story, and I said right off the top and for anyone who tuned in a little bit late, this story, these, these stories originate in England. These are English in the United Kingdom universities that have demanded that spelling and grammar not be graded, not cost people marks. But I have to believe that if it gets any traction there, and it sounds like it is, it's going to find its way here soon enough. That's how this thing works. These ideas start somewhere and then someone hears them and brings them here because they like the sound of it. Do you expect that we could see these landing in Canada at some point? Well, first off, you're going to find that individual professors will take that approach. Um, we have a lot of autonomy in the classroom. And so nobody comes in and says, Ken, you have to mark the assignments in the following way which is, you know, I like, I like my academic freedom, but I have the freedom to mark harder. And so, quite frankly, if as a student you have five, five professors and two of them are real hard markers on grammar and the other three don't care too much, you're still going to learn a lot. Um, will it come here as an institutional form? Um, Canadian academics are pretty conservative as a group. I don't mean in a political sense, but I mean in a sort of traditional uh, skills-based sort of sense. Um, we have... Um, some, some major issues developing in sort of, the, say, the professional schools where a lot of our students, a disproportionate number, have English as a second language. Um, and those student, those instructors get very upset when, a, say, a student in, say, engineering who's brilliant goes over and takes a history course and I give them a failing grade and their engineering program is going to be held back because of my grade. I've had my colleagues at universities come and talk to me about that and say, oh, come on, it doesn't matter too much. And I would just give them and stare them in the eye and say it matters a whole bunch because they're going to be going off and finding work at some point. My father used to hire engineering graduates from the University of British Columbia, and most years he had to let half of them go because they didn't write effectively. So you're not doing anybody any favors, regardless of the program. 
Um, so I, I think I think we're going to be relatively safe here. We we don't follow those kind of trends in Canada quite as much as as other places. And we've got a lot of absolutely fabulous faculty all across the all across the disciplines who really strongly believe in the the, the need to write effectively and communicate effectively. If one of my colleagues sort of doesn't follow that line, do I get too upset? Not really. Um, if the institution told me how to mark, I'd be really angry. And but I think we'll the... find that that model. Well, and the reason I ask, and we got to go, but the reason I ask is simply because I, I, I do think that you're probably very correct about the professors who want to do this, do it the right way. But if all of a sudden you have student groups who come out and start using this, and like in England, apparently saying, you demanding good grammar, good spelling is racist or is elitist. Those words are loaded words. And I could see an awful lot of professors saying, I don't need that fight. I don't need that attached to my name. I'm not. I'm not going to die on this hill. Yeah, well, it's interesting that we'll find out. Maybe, or maybe we won't find out. I hope we don't find out, because in fact, a awful lot of the students are driven by the same expectations of career opportunities and what have you, and they they do take the leadership from the institution and whatever. Um, but it's kind of an interesting thing. I guess I would say that that's actually one of the hills that that many professors would actually die on. Um, if if we get to the point where somebody tells us how to mark assignments and to pass everybody and to do all that kind of stuff, I know an awful lot of my colleagues would, would think it's time to become a radio announcer. <laughs> it's a lot easier, I promise you. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Ken Coates, co-author of the book Campus Confidential and a professor at the University of Saskatchewan. Great conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Take care. Bye now. Uh, let us hope that does not come here. I mean, look, it's, it's not about trying to be elitist. It isn't, but there surely is some value in proper good communication. And as Dr. Coates just said, you know, it's if we had all these companies out in the world saying, hey, we're on board with this, we're okay with people not being able to express themselves in a proper way, then maybe fine. But you, you're, I don't know that you're, and if it comes here, I don't know if you'd be doing anybody any good or any help by saying, we don't care if you can't write, we don't care if you have bad grammar or what, because as soon as you go out into the workforce, people notice this stuff and it does matter. I really hope that this one, this idea for the most part dies in Great Britain and it stays there. And look, we can be understanding and we can be, if you have a, 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 a student who comes in, a foreign student who comes here in English is not their first language. Yeah, there should be, I think, some understanding of that and some ways to help them. But to simply wave your hand and say, look, we don't care, that, that, that seems, that boy, that just seems entirely wonky. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.